Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Katya Ekintieva, Vice President of New Energy Solutions at TGS. Many of you probably know TGS for the data sets they have for the oil and gas industry. Something you may not be aware of is the various data sets they have in other aspects of energy. Today, we are going to learn about their wind energy data sets and what TGS is doing in this space. So, Katya, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to TGS. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. And um, I really appreciate an opportunity to share the story and talk about our recent developments in the energy space. Um, Thank you very much for having me today, and I'll try and make it, uh, as you mentioned, it's a high-energy podcast, so let's make it engaging and uh, dynamic. So, uh, introduction. Let me start with TGS. Uh, we are the energy data company. We offer data-driven solutions and create actionable insights across the energy spectrum. We're public. We traded Oslo Stock Exchange, and we have uh, no debt. We have offices around the world, and our operational quarters are here in Houston, where I am based together with the majority of um, TGS uh, employees. So we started um, 40 years ago by providing the oil and gas industry with the most critical subsurface data. So that's geological and geophysical data, seismic, uh, various geotechnical data. Um, we have the largest geoscience library in the world that also includes well data. We have the most comprehensive library in North America. And we practice what's called a multi-client model, whereby TGS invests and owns the data and our customers tend to be energy producers. They get to share the costs and obtain critical information to enable their decision-making and ultimately reduce their investment risk. How do you reduce investment risk with seismic data? Well, if you're equipped with it, you're less likely to drill a dry well. That's how we started. So then a couple of years ago, uh, we've uh, launched a very exciting initiative and been on a very um, fulfilling journey to identify and assess uh, new growth areas for the company within the energy marketplace. And we like to move fast. We are very entrepreneurial by nature. We're very results-driven. And very importantly, we have a strong balance sheet to support initiatives like this. And so today, a few years later, TGS offers a variety of data-driven solutions, and that includes a broad energy sector. So both organically and throughout uh, mergers and acquisitions, we had a very exciting week last week, by the way, announcing a number of new additions to the TGS family. Mm. We're striving to diversify our data portfolio and lean on our digital capabilities to create an ecosystem, a digital ecosystem, a platform where most critical data insights can be obtained. Um, so today we have offerings uh, not only in the oil and gas, and oil and gas portfolio will remain very important part of the offering for TGS, but also within variety of new energy segments such as offshore wind and we'll talk about that and then also geothermal solar um, carbon capture and storage and um, a few other segments so that's just a quick uh, introduction of uh, TGS and happy to uh, talk more about uh, offshore wind and uh, what we're here to um, uh, learn more about so 
Yes, I, that sounds that sounds great. Thank you for that introduction. And I think that that's probably what most people know TGS for is the is the data. And I like the multi-client model where you can you can invest in these large necessary data sets to build out a portfolio. And and in in some ways that this is a tangent that I was just thinking about that we're not going to explore too much, but the idea that that a multi-client model really is a collaborative model and you are you are helping clients get the best value for what they have in that data by almost forcing them to collaborate, but not really forcing them to collaborate, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I'll, I'll uh, let me just... Uh kind of help you understand how we started thinking about the challenges and the point pain points in variety of different energy segments and how we also identified those capabilities that we have that we've developed over the years uh, and how we found the way to transfer them into um, the new markets, whether it's a new business model, that novel thinking of multi-client that does not really exist today or it did not exist until recent in, in other energy um, sectors and also um, our ability to truly lean on that digital fluency and use and utilize some of the um, foundation that we've already built by aggregating and working with so many different data sets, so many different types, so many different um, sources that those data sets come through. Uh, through. Uh, but I also just, just to mention kind of uh, my experience and where um, this might background fit in or <laughs> where I started was actually oceanography and practicing uh, within sort of various research and academic institutions. And I had a real passion for marine technology when I started. So um, um, I got a taste for being sort of a real explorer uh, at the very early stage of my career because of uh, some of the exciting things that I've seen, whether it's mapping the seafloor and uh, being part of those new expeditions and new ways of discovering different things, using different methodologies and different technologies. And I've got exposed to a broad range of technology applications and throughout my career, and I worked with... Uh, um, some of the leading technology providers like Schlumberger, and I just joined TGS just over a decade ago. What's been really important is to turn those technology applications, that innovation into practice, to really make those solutions commercial and scalable. And uh, um, one of the things kind of throughout my career and I started in Europe and then I moved to Canada and looked at a variety of uh, different segments from the oil and gas perspective, onshore and offshore portfolios when it comes to TGS. And uh, I came to Houston around about seven years ago um, from a company uh, that TGS acquired up in Canada where TGS was looking to diversify the portfolio into the onshore. And we started growing uh, that portfolio further, uh, more globally with TGS. And again, um, it was really inspiring to see how new ideas, new ways of thinking, new business models coming again from the offshore multi-client model into in the onshore space, which was developing very fast, um, by the way, with unconventional resources being a critical part of the developing mix of energy. It's been really fulfilling to bring those, again, models, the new technology to the marketplace and ultimately invest in, in new data that was very relevant to um, um, different parts of the oil and gas sector. So um, just a little bit uh, more, more on that. I, I find that growing things from kind of ground zero and turning those ideas into commercial solution is something that drove me in my journey. And that's where um, being part of this um, new development at TGS, being part of something new and different, where we are contributing to the energy transition, we're looking for new ways to grow our business within different segments has been incredibly uh, rewarding and, and also uh, inspiring. So um, um, hopefully that sort of framed a little bit the the discussion that we're about to have here, Joe. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's great hearing your background and, and seeing the the different entrepreneurial spirit of TGS and of the the ideas of just how do you how do you take these data and from from disparate data sources and build out something that is useful not only to one person or or another person but something that actually advances the science advances the the ability to do that groundbreaking exploration and ultimately development of these new energy resources with with that idea let's start talking about wind so when i think of wind i think of that that thing that is blowing on my face that's messing up my hair that sometimes feels good and other times feels like an oppressive heat oven for all of you in Houston or Dallas or anywhere in the Southwest. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about wind data? Very good question. So, so um, first of all, um, let me just uh, emphasize the fact that STGS looks to diversify its portfolio, we've actually identified a pretty broad range of different um, energy sectors where we're looking to already um, have solution commercialized or we're looking to grow them uh, from ground zero. And offshore wind is a very, very important um, key element to new energy solutions overall. And what new energy solution actually includes, if you just let me comment on that, it's um, areas like carbon capture and storage. So TGS, historically, we have the best understanding of the subsurface in order to capture and especially store CO2. You really need to understand your subsurface conditions, you need to assess those risks. So we're driving the value of that information in a different direction, in direction of those companies looking to store and understand um, different attributes of that risk element um, and ability to actually find suitable storage opportunities. So that's one area in the carbon storage space, for instance, that we're already there and we have our Carbon Axion platform that enables that insight, enables to deliver your uh, critical information. Uh, we're also um, contributing uh, to the geothermal domain. And I understand, Joe, that that's something that you've got passion for. Yep. Absolutely. That is my focus. It has been my focus for pretty much my my entire adult life. So I am I am all for geothermal and I am always looking forward to discussing geothermal more and hopefully getting more people excited. So Fantastic. Well, maybe a conversation for another session that you <laughs> will have as part of the Energy Transition podcast, but Certainly a very interesting development, and uh, while it's not yet to the level of scale that we would like it to see, geothermal um, energy, it, it's got a great potential. And for TGS to be able to come through and provide temperature information that is corrected, correlated, and again, enable companies to look for those areas of subsurface that might present opportunities for geothermal developments is what we are also developing. Then we also look at uh, deep sea minerals. That's something that still early days, but uh, rare minerals, well, the clues in the name, going to be very mm -hmm. important and looking for ways where we can map and help the industry to understand those resources potential is going to be um, uh, pretty, uh, pretty important to develop further. And then offshore wind and solar. Those are the elements that we looked at both organically and inorganically. So we've... Uh, um, in the offshore wind, we've uh, moved forward with um, building some products already. And again, we'll talk a little bit about that. Winaxum is one of our um, recent developments uh, where we built this organically by aggregating large amounts of information, mainly wind resource, um, and bringing it to the platform in, uh, in a very um, user-friendly way. And then we also, um, uh, just about a year ago, acquired a company, 4C Offshore, uh, and this company is a leader in the um, 
intelligence base uh, when it comes to uh, offshore projects. So we've already got the, uh, the sort of the building block there. And then the solar last week was pretty exciting. We've announced an acquisition of the company called uh, Predictor. And Predictor is a leading provider of asset management and real-time data management solutions to renewable and energy asset owners. So we're um, building those solutions pretty quickly. And uh, offshore wind is one of our priorities. And we'll uh, start talking about wind data, I guess, at this stage. Yes. Yeah. So that's it's very exciting to hear the the opportunities and the mergers and acquisitions there of of kind of that full service package to not only understand what the resource is, but then also having the underlying um, opportunities, the underlying technologies you need to best utilize that resource and best produce that resource it when i think of something that is subsurface it feels it just feels like a different beast than something like wind or solar what so i guess what is wind data and how would you make that comparison between something like wind data and something like like the geology data set of oil and gas wells that you have? Yeah, it's a very good question. So let me just start with uh, wind data. And uh, generally speaking, wind data is used by many industries, shipping, aviation, agricultural and gas, uh, you name it. But when it comes to um, assessing wind energy and converting it to power for power generation sector, uh, bid onshore wind, offshore wind, it's critical to understand the wind and the hub height of that turbine. And by the way, those turbines are getting bigger and bigger, and you really need to understand those conditions uh, up at that height, and that becomes even more critical. What else is important when it comes to assessing that wind energy is seasonality. Um, those variations on a month-by-month -month basis are very important as you look at producing that energy and also uh, comparing it to the demand you might have in a certain region during a certain time of the year, for instance. Um, you also need to understand uh, um, and, and look at the historical analysis of sort of wind conditions, weather conditions, because past will tell you about the future. So when it comes to technologies that exist today to help um, wind industry to obtain that information, it's generally done through MetMask, so has historically been done through MetMask. How else do you measure it at the sort of 300 meter height? Uh, but that technology is very expensive. Those MetMask offshore, or even onshore, they're quite expensive. Um, and as offshore wind develops uh, really fast, and one of the most important um, needs there is to reduce the cost as we see it in oil and gas, as we see it in all the renewable space, reducing cost is critical. If you can do it in any and every stage of your life cycle, uh, you're going to win. And so with those mat masts um, being rarely available, uh, there's a new technology that actually came to the marketplace uh, that's developed uh, just over five years ago, floating lighter technology. So again, it's really interesting to be working again with some of the marine technologies, but the applications are very different. The applications are now to measure wind and to measure currents and uh, measure wave heights. So um, uh, this technology, floating lighter uh, technology, is ultimately uh, a, a, it's a big system floating, it's, it's moored, it's also powered by solar energy, so it's self-sustained. Uh, and it's equipped with remote sensing devices um, that I again installed in this floating platform, and you're measuring um, different elements um, of the weather conditions. You also have a uh, seabed uh, platform that measures um, different metocean conditions, and I'll, I'll get to uh, this in a minute, um, and also environmental factors like uh, mammals and uh, general activity in the area. Um, but but just let me get to the point. So why wind data and, and why is it important? And, and to a certain level, the inspiration really came from the fact that the profits in the booming wind energy industry remained tied 
to weather conditions. So a few years ago, I think it was fall 2019, Orsted, for instance, one of the leading renewable companies uh, downgraded their potential profits from seven offshore wind projects that were won in a competitive tender after they admitted that they overestimated production forecasts across the whole portfolio. And so many variables were assessed in its production forecasts and the conclusion was made that particular effects such as blockage effects, um, um, different speed variability, um, the way that the wind approaches turbines and the wake effect, what's been called in the industry is, 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 is again a, shows that there's a lot of complex mechanisms that go into the equation of assessing your energy forecast. And wind and understanding those attributes is where it all begins. So it, it, those conditions and, again, understanding how the energy forecast um, has been produced, it all starts with accuracy. It all starts with, uh, with the data and... Um, we felt that if we can only come through and help this industry to come up with uh, higher accuracy measurements, which then enable higher accuracy baseline from where the uh, energy yield could be estimated with a higher precision, then we add value. And that's how we sort of started to develop uh, some of our um products and again leaning on our ability to work with different types of data but one thing I also wanted to mention whenever it comes to data and you asked me about the differences between subsurface data and wind data it's really important that there is a subject matter expertise that helps you develop those solutions It's absolutely critical. So that's been one of our um, um, learnings recently is how do we make sure that we access the right skill set and we bring that subject matter expertise. It's atmospheric scientists when it comes to wind resource assessment, but it's geoscientists when it comes to geothermal in many ways and uh, sort of uh, oil and gas data, seismic, uh, well data and reserve engineering. So it's really important that you understand how to drive the value of that data further. Now, when it comes to differences between wind data and subsurface data, well, one common word there, it's data. But there's a spatial and temporal dimension to each one of them. And you can imagine that, um, generally speaking, subsurface data changes on geological scale. Well, wind is very dynamic in nature. It changes every second. And so... Um, at the same time, the volumes are very high. The volumes of data that we, for instance, in the seismic world that we have aggregated in our data, like it's about six petabytes. Well, now we're building those wind models and we're bringing new data sets from public sources, but also acquiring our own. Those are tens of terabytes of data. So it's still pretty substantial um, in terms of the volumes of data that you're dealing with because wind and real-time data is is driving those volumes. Now, also processing side of it. So in seismic, you need to process the data. You need to make sure that you're representing that subsurface very accurately. In wind, you also need to do some modeling. You need to take some historical uh, data, you need to work with numerical weather prediction simulations, and again, past tells you about the future. So um, there's a lot of sort of processing elements there when it comes to different data sets. Also, probably worth mentioning that seismic is very specialized type of data, and wind data may be a bit less complex, but wind modeling itself and wind assessment are um, pretty science-driven elements and certainly when you're looking to apply um, um, again certain calculations in the wind assessment and what we call bankable assessment domain it takes a lot of expertise 
and it takes a lot of understanding um, of what the data really tells you and how to interpret it. Uh, so that's probably a one uh, sort of overall element of differences and similarities. At the same time, when it comes to processes, how we work with data, and I know that your um, um, podcast is sponsored by AWS, and we are... Uh, we use AWS as our cloud provider when we ingested uh, our data in a data lake and when we're building metadata and ultimately um, adding more elements to our platform. We worked with uh, AWS AMR and AWS Glue and Lambda. And so all of these things and all of these partnerships are making um, those developments possible for TGS. So it, there's a... A lot of differences, but also the same. In some ways, there are the same points that I, I like to highlight here that it ultimately is the data and the data quality. And one point that I really liked that you made is having a subject matter expert ultimately going back to understanding what that data is telling you and then how you can actually get insights from that data. I think those are very important aspects and very important points. When, go ahead. No, absolutely. Just uh, also wanted to emphasize that it all comes down to adding value to those customers, to those stakeholders that are looking to either optimize their efforts or drive the costs down or bring higher accuracy to to their um, estimates and as long as we're able to do that uh, we have a pretty robust solution yep yeah that's great now you you talked about a lot of different modeling and a lot of different layers that go into kind of what what else there is in determining a prospect in terms of what I was hearing and almost translating this into the subsurface, you've got your windmills and those are ultimately going to be spaced at some type of spacing. That spacing is going to create a, I think you said wake effect, which is kind of in my mind, that's kind of the, what you're looking at there is almost a parent-child relationship, kind of where you're actually draining from and ultimately all of that is what you need in order to give your to accurately estimate a a forecast on power production and it sounds like the this is something that is is still a an active area of of research so to speak because this is something that is still being still being modified by some of the largest companies out there. Yes, absolutely, very true. And um, when it comes to actual prospecting of an area, so let's just put wind on site for a second, understanding wind is important, but when you look at where am I gonna build my wind farm offshore, you need to look at many elements, um, including access to demand, access to your transmission line, your understanding of your grid. You need to understand the regulatory framework. Are you actually able to construct here? What are the limitations you might have? You also need to look at your supply chain constraints. This is one of the biggest challenges the industry is experiencing right now is supply chain. Um, you need to look at your offshore ports, your infrastructure. You also need to understand some of the geotechnical elements of your subsurface, not probably kilometers of a subsurface, but at least 100 meters where you're going to put those massive uh, foundations. So you need to do your desktop study. So there's a lot of elements that go into um, a process of understanding um, how am I going to capture that particular lease area, for instance, and compared to oil and gas, offshore wind projects uh, overall have a lower capital risk. Uh, so um, you might drill a dry hole in oil and gas world. Well, that's not going to happen in the offshore wind. You might under or overestimate your wind capacity, hopefully underestimate rather than overestimate or um, construction costs. But assuming you've done your due diligence, the risk is generally lower, but at the same time, you have a much longer 
uh, time frame for um, for re delivering returns and, and margins also tend to be a little bit lower. So having all this in mind, um, our approach has been what can we do from TGS perspective to again bring more relevant data, bring data that's actually quite unique. Uh, one of my favorites uh, uh, sayings, I think it's by Sherlock Holmes, is it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. So it's all very well when you bring the most accurate models, when you bring the most accurate algorithms, but if you actually go ahead and generate those measurements, you actually measure it being right there on the spot at that height. That's where the value is uh, getting created. And so as TGS is concerned, if we're able to bring more of those measurements and bring those measurements um, sooner, um, bring them more cost effectively and bring them with the highest quality that one would have if that project was acquired on a sort of proprietary level, then we're really looking at a very similar challenge that we have been working with in oil and gas um, by providing seismic data. So ultimately we're enabling uh, faster access and uh, we're letting those companies to have more informed decisions. I like it. And that makes complete sense and helpful for that clarification of, of really it, it is that data and that those decision-making enablers. Now, I think I fully understand, or well, let me rephrase that. I think that we can understand what this wind data is at a high level and I definitely have a greater appreciation for the complexity of of building offshore wind and of building wind farms in general and trying to understand the overall potential of a given area. Now, and I, I think I understand TGS's place in all of this, but instead of me having this thought in my mind, I just want to give you the opportunity. Why is TGS getting into the wind prospecting tool, wind prospecting data uh, providing arena? Well, I think it's um, pretty straightforward. We see where the growth opportunities in the market are and we ultimately look for ways to take advantage of some of those fast-growing segments. In 2021, global energy transition investments exceeded global oil and gas investments for the first time in history. And so energy transition investments grew by 27%, while oil and gas investments, and that was, okay, 2021, grew by 2%. So um, we're looking for ways to find those fast-growing segments where we can add value, uh, where we can build the value for our shareholders, where we can also build more sustainable solutions. And that's ultimately one area that we feel we are going to be um, very successful contributing. We're actually very encouraged by the amount of interest that we're gaining uh, when we announced our um, first ever multi-client campaign. And this was in the, one of the hotspots of the uh, offshore wind today, New York Bites uh, lease area, where it attracted um, $4 billion of uh, um, development where companies look to uh, build those new farms, uh, new wind farms. We, we feel that we're able to scale the solution. We're able to then bring it to new and emerging areas, whether it's uh, the roadmap that uh, BOEM has um, in front of us today, where we have uh, a lot of potential in uh, California and Oregon and Central Atlantic. We're looking to deploy those measurements. We're looking to bring something to this industry that helps to accelerate those developments. And I think this is what we are here in the energy transition to do, is look for ways where we can accelerate that transition uh, but do it um, in a responsible and um, controlled, so to speak, manner. And this is one way that we're looking to contribute. Now, 
in terms of where we see those growth areas for offshore wind, um, and I also wanted to mention one thing. In addition to wind, if you think of some other data types that we are collecting, for instance, um, what's important to build cable routes and transmission line? You need to understand your currents. You need to understand uh, your wave heights. Uh, we also have different sensors such as uh, CTD zone, we call it. It's ultimately something that measures your electrical conductivity, which is important for construction material. What are you going to use to build the wind um, farm foundations? Understanding temperature, pressure of seawater, uh, all of those elements are actually pretty important, not just to assess the area and its suitability, but also to come up with the best design and potentially even uh, look at how you're going to construct it, what materials you're going to use. So all of those elements uh, could be driven by the accuracy of, of different data types that we're looking to provide. I hope this helps to uh, to answer that question, Joe, and I'm, I'm happy to also sort of share views on where where we see the offshore wind going and generally the industry. Yeah, I am curious since y'all have been diving into this in in very detailed fashion. I am curious on your analysis of the wind industry, where kind of where is it going? And I know it sounds like we're focused on offshore wind. I'm curious if you think that there will be more onshore wind or just, I guess, generally, where do you see that biggest growth that's going to be happening? Yes, very good question, Joe, and thank you for this. We now have, uh, yeah, the leading intelligence uh, platform to provide the insight like this with our uh, 4C um, team out of the UK. But it's probably... Um, fair to say that every country in the world right now with distant wind resource and shallow water along its coastline, you need 60 meters for fixed uh, uh, wind, is assessing its offshore wind opportunities. Um, and so onshore wind is more mature. It's already uh, established. Um, it's a very critical part of the energy mix already in many countries around the world. Um, so if we just look at where we are today in 2021, so the global wind industry, so offshore and onshore, has its second best year with almost 94 gigawatt of capacity added globally. Um, so Europe, Latin America, Africa Middle East had record years for new onshore installations, but total onshore wind installations in 2021 was 18% lower than the previous year, and the decline was driven primarily by the slowdown of onshore wind growth in the um, world's two largest wind power markets, being China and the US. And then um, it's probably um, important to mention that um, if we look ahead at the um, future of the capacity that is yet to be installed, according to uh, Global Wind Energy Council, we expect about 1,200 gigawatt wind to be installed by 2030, and approximately 250 gigawatt of it will be offshore wind. So out of 250, by the way, of offshore wind, 30 gigawatt is going to be installed here in this country, in the US, which is a pretty exciting prospect. So onshore is still uh, beating offshore in terms of installed capacity going forward. However, offshore is gaining on onshore, and as offshore capex per megawatt is higher than, than for onshore, and offshore has high capacity factors as well. In terms of investments, in term, which is proxy for your market size growth, offshore is gaining even more. So, for instance, the investment pipeline for offshore wind projects doubled in the last uh, six months. So this presents, again, the great opportunities for companies that have capabilities that can be transferred uh, it presents great opportunities for supply chain to help and accelerate those developments but it won't be without its challenges for sure yep absolutely and i i think that that's those are all really interesting points and one thing that 
that you pointed out was the the higher capex for offshore. But one thing that we've seen in oil and gas is that the more you the more you do something, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, typically the faster you are. And by being faster, you ultimately can make it cheaper or at least get down the cost curve to a sustainable, consistent cost. And to me, it sounds like we are still working our way down that cost curve for offshore wind. And once we get down to that kind of bottom, it sounds like that is going to be a, it'll give us a very clear picture of the long-term growth potential for wind, at least offshore wind. Absolutely. That that cost curve will continue to be really important. And so if you, if I had to think about the elements that will sort of continue to shape up the future of offshore wind potential, it's going to continue to be number one, innovation and technology. Um, you know, we're going to be looking at floating wind. Uh, already the projects are out there at the commercial uh, stage. So that's going to be a new development. That's going to accelerate the efforts further, but it is going to require a lot of um, new technology. Sustainability, number two. How can we create more efficient turbines? Uh, the average capacity of an installed turbine has tripled between 2010 and 2020. And so uh, that's going to still um, be the forever improving element of, of the that, that again, that, that um, efficiency. Um, and then recyclable blades, something else that the industry is looking at. How can we make those materials and how can we therefore make this industry more sustainable? Uh, another element, number three I would mention, is hydrogen production. Something that is still a little bit out in the future, but coupling wind turbines with electrolyzers and our ability to generate green hydrogen offshore, the transportation becomes easy. You only need a pipeline instead of many cable connections. That will be a big breakthrough. Um, something that the industry is already looking at. And it will happen. It will be a matter of time. This will be a very exciting development. And, and last but not least, and something where we see again a, a great a similarity with the marketplace where we come from, oil and gas, is further digitalization. The industry needs to see further cost reductions and automation will play an important role. Yep, I completely agree. And one of my very early guests was looking at automation and specifically in wind fields, wind farms, and how to optimize wind production for not only the wind speed, but also if there was any type of any type of slight angle adjustment that was needed. And I think that that is it it's something that I I don't know or understand right now when we're talking about something like a floating wind turbine, how would you optimize that floating wind turbine's production if it is kind of having some type of movement associated with tidal movements, but also just the ingenuity that we have in digitalization, automation, improving the overall efficiencies and, and being able to do that from from the the comfort of your office on shore, I think is, as you point out, that has made so many improvements across energy. It only makes sense that we're going to find a way to do that offshore wind as well. Yeah, there's certainly, we're certainly going to see more complexity and we're certainly going to see more sophistication in our algorithms when it comes to digitalization, when it comes to uh, um, AI, and we're going to see a lot of autonomous vehicles, hopefully in the future, uncrewed. There'll be some uh, improvements on the safety and sustainability side from that perspective. So there's so many elements where the digital skill is going to be... Um, 
important digital twins we're talking about. This is something that we've already been working in oil and gas. This is something that offshore wind is looking at. Any complex offshore project requires a lot of automation. So it's going to be interesting to see how we um, we all evolve with, uh, with that. Yep. Speaking of evolving and looking into the future, I guess let's let's start there. What what companies are in the wind industry now and where do you see that going or changing in the next five to ten years? Well I think we um if if we look at sort of uh the trends uh going forward, there's certainly uh, going to be, I would maybe split it in sort of three three elements. So oil and gas majors will um, gain market share in offshore wind and they seemingly have a high willingness to spend and also to a certain degree willing to accept uh, low returns. It will be harder and harder to be relatively small and independent, uh, but not impossible. The competition is um, is increasing. And especially for niche local players focusing on a country or region, there's still going to be a lot of opportunities. Um, some oil and gas players will likely also continue to expand into onshore wind and PV solar and energy storage, hydrogen, batteries, a lot of uh, new developments. We will also likely to see more consolidation among developers in general. Um, and whether those are utility companies or oil and gas companies or IPPs, um, they will be increasing their multi-technology pipelines. And what I mean by that is um, they will be expanding their portfolio to look at bringing different um parts of the energy mix sources. So one example is our recent um, customer um, that we've acquired through Predictor um, acquisition. It's uh, one of the leading solar uh, wind, uh, solar developers, Catic. About a year ago, they were um, pure solar PV and then they acquired a company called Essen Power. They now have sizable hydro and onshore uh, wind production. And also that pipeline grew globally. Um, the same company now work, is working on a battery and ammonia project and offshore wind projects. Um, another example is in just a couple of months ago, uh, Total Energies announced the acquisition of 50% of clear energy here in the United States, an onshore wind company, which uh, was Total's largest acquisition in renewable energy in the US. So we'll see more of those opportunities where companies consolidate and actually expand their portfolios at the same time. And then institutional investors um, have in recent years grown their presence in all renewable. That, that's also likely uh, to continue. Hmm. Well, that it's very interesting to think about and thinking about just the the parallels with any any growing industry when when i think about shale for example how a lot of it was first kind of started out what i felt like were the the independents and the wildcatters trying to make the shale revolution happen whereas now after you have matured things like the permian and and some of the different major plays in the permian now it is being more or less it is being grown out and almost turned into an assembly line where the majors are are the key players and the ones who are continuing to drive down the cost and it sounds like it in some ways is similar in the wind industry where you will get larger institutional investments total energies investing 50 percent buying 50 percent share of of you said was it clear sky clear way so I think it it sounds very similar where it's it's almost the larger institutional type investments coming from these large legacy energy providers, that being the oil and gas industry, is ultimately what's going to continue on this market and continue to 
push it to better, cheaper, more reliable energy. And and it's it's a thing we all agree that oil and gas industry um, and the companies that are looking to diversify their portfolios and especially energy producers have a great opportunity here. And if if you're able to deal with complex offshore projects in the oil and gas, you probably have some transferable skills to offshore wind, although it is largely a construction project. So a little bit different, but again, a lot of similarities. So you can look at transferring that if you choose to. We're really good in this industry, and I mean oil and gas industry, at partnerships, collaborations. So um, combining forces even when it comes to organic uh, growth. So if you look again at New York Bites uh, lease round that drew um, uh, attention from many players in the industry, whether pure renewables, whether utility companies, or oil and gas, there's a lot of uh, joint partnerships being formed. Uh, a lot of companies uh, from the onshore wind space uh, coming into offshore domain and looking to transfer those skills. So that geographical strength that uh, oil and gas companies have where, again, they're very international, they have ability to act quickly in different markets that they are present, also will add to that competitive uh, factor that oil and gas companies have if they choose to uh, develop those portfolios within new um, new domains. Hmm. Yep. Well, with that, I want to switch gears, get into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what's a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, I have many. <laughs> but if I have to um, comment on a book that I like reading and uh, as um, Growing up, I really enjoyed reading classics, so I'll go with Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, but uh, I read that book uh, many times, and it certainly inspired me at an early age to experience new cultures, to be courageous, to uh, uh, find uh, opportunities to travel the world, to work in um, um, different environments, and that certainly um, shaped some of my experiences. Um, if I to uh, think of a book recently, and as we are on the Energy por Podcast here, I would say um, if you haven't had a chance to uh, read the New Map uh, book by Daniel Jorgen, um, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, uh, really enjoyed that book. gives you a great historical perspective on the importance of energy security and points to the profound challenges that lie ahead of us. I would like to think that actually some of you already uh, seen or read this book. So uh, those are the two <laughs> very different spectrum that I would maybe uh, like to mention. Yes, I think both of those are great recommendations. The new map is a is a continual recommendation. I think if I ever am able to get Daniel Jurgen on the show, we will probably just talk about the book the whole time. And I think... Around the world in eighty days is a is a very fitting, <laughs> fitting book for the show because of the whole idea of of seeing a new frontier and traveling and really just kind of pushing forward with adventure and new ideas and and all of that fun stuff. The next question: When will we be net zero as a society? Assuming that. Yeah, we means the world, the uh, society as uh, as a whole. I think um, my view is whether we achieve it um, in 2050 or 2070, what, what's really important is that we all recognize that there's a great deal of urgency here and that we all act that way. Uh, set the targets and reach them. That's what we uh, like to do in the business. It sounds very simple, but the task is gigantic and very complex, but it is life critical. Um, we're working with uh, varied uh, social, political and economic spheres. Uh, scientifically speaking, you need to reach an equilibrium when you talk about net zero equilibrium and how much entrepreneurship 
pogenic carbon flows to and from atmosphere. Um, so like a uh, frame of reference that I read uh, in one of the scholar articles recently, which suggested that uh, we need uh, the urgency of zero, the integrity of net, and the consistency with sustainable development objective, delivering enough energy to the world in an affordable and clean manner is today's necessity. And as the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. So we will figure it out and we all need to take a role in this transition and, and play our part. So I'd like to leave you with that thought, Joe. Yes, I I have not heard that before. The the urgency of zero, integrity of net, and necessity of sustainability. Is that what it was? Sustainable development objectives and that being, um, again, delivering enough energy in the cost-effective manner. Hmm. Yep. And clean manner, of course. Yep, I like that. And I think that that is, whoever said that was was spot on because I think that is, it's really important to, to think about the urgency of the matter, but ultimately the quickest way to, to net zero is for all of us to just stop doing everything. And obviously that is going to wreak havoc on society. And that would be significantly worse for society than, than to, move forward with a sustainable development and a safe development. So I, I really like that. The The last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. <laughs> so just building on the concept of um, uh, putting an action forward and uh, again, one of the famous sayings by uh, Thomas Edison's, the value of an idea lies in the using of it. So given the audience you have, Joe, and your previous engagement opportunities, and especially your own passion for geothermal energy, how would you rate our ability as an industry? And in this particular case, I refer to it as being sort of an oil and gas industry to turn ideas into actions when we look at that contribution that we all have to the energy transition. How do you rate that ability? That is an interesting question. And from an industry perspective, as far as us as a whole, I think that there, as far as a rating, I would give us a seven. And I would say seven because we, I think, are better than some in terms of once we want to move forward, we can do that very quickly and we have the ability to move very quickly. But I think that one of the biggest problems is that right now the industry feels like it's on its heels when it comes to the energy transition and and the net zero discussions and what that actually means for business. And where I think that starts to fall apart is that a lot of the, a lot of the investments that I see being made, I don't know if they are, are going to have the returns that, that we want, or maybe the, maybe a better way to look at that is, the investments being made are not going to accelerate us into the energy transition. They are going to very safely make returns while also decreasing net carbon for a company. And I think that jumping back to the net zero conversation, I think that all of that is leaning too much on the necessity of sustainable development from a business perspective. I don't think that we are looking at being intentional and urgent with decarbonization. And I think that that is something that we can do, but it will be 
several years of potentially low returns on investment. And I think that's that's what we see in geothermal. Your first five years are are very, very negative because you're building a power plant and you're not producing any money. And then once you start producing money, you are mostly just paying back interest on your loans until you finally get up to a point where you're you're positive. And I think that that is something that that we're scared of. We're scared of making that investment. And that is what I would say is almost a challenge for the industry is that if if we want to make a stronger push, then, well, what am I trying to say? I think we can make a stronger push if we're willing to if we're willing to do that. And it, it I feel like I'm rambling, but I think that there there is some truth to what I'm saying. And I don't know what it is, which I think is evidence of a very great question. No, I, I, th- thank you for uh, your very humble answer here, Joe. I think what you're mentioning is is, is going to be um, yeah, a very challenging journey still ahead of us, those elements that you brought up. I think what we've seen in renewable energy is that providing some of those incentive mechanisms from the um, government perspective where you have certain targets uh, to drive the development of that technology to reduce your costs is something that um, is going to be an interesting one to observe. Uh, Look at uh, CCS. That's one of my uh, favorite topics and how some of those incentives, 45Q being one, is driving the interest from the industry to actually... uh, develop the technology and uh, uh, store your uh, your emissions. So, but at some stage, it's going to have to discontinue and you have to be more sustainable and uh, those investments needs to be uh, able to uh, to continue delivering adequate returns. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see how oil and gas industry is also able to um, pivot into that concept of uh, storing CO2 because we have a great deal of infrastructure um, skills to be able to do that and that's how we can just help to make some of our current investments cleaner. Yep, absolutely. Well, Katya, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, to join you today, Joe. I uh, also wanted to maybe uh, share one thought that energy transition provides uh, new opportunities for innovative uh, geoscientists and uh, uh, whether you're a fresh graduate or you're simply looking to add to your current portfolio of skills or you're looking to pivot into a new segment, uh, the opportunity is there. And they say that capacity... uh, to learn is a gift, ability to learn is a skill, and the willingness to learn is a choice. So continue making those choices. Um, be open-minded um, when an opportunity presents itself. And last but not least, seek out those experiences that bring you new perspective on things and allow you to engage with new technology, new market, or new culture. Uh, those things are really important in one's professional development and also ability uh, to start something new and relevant and especially when it comes to creating a clean and more sustainable world with adequate access to energy supply and on that note it all starts with uh, with people for TGS it's uh, going to be uh, about uh, bringing um, the adequate skill set to the company we're looking to uh, hire different roles, uh, data scientists. We're looking with uh, looking to, again, broaden our horizons. And with that, uh, we have more opportunities for uh, people to join us. So if you're curious, if you, are, you like high-paced environment, if you're innovative, if you're results-driven, come and join TGS and look us up at tgs.com. 
Great. Thank you for those last words. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry and keep up to date with everything going on, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Lastly, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or you have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.